0: So I've kind of painted myself into a corner here, because at the beginning of last episode, I said that I'd let you know if there wasn't going to be an episode the following week. And what I didn't realize at the time is that the following Saturday is the day after Christmas, which I think you could imagine isn't necessarily a day I'd like to spend researching and writing about overly serious social history. And maybe it's not so much a day that you'd enjoy listening to it. So I've decided that not only am I going to put out this episode today and then take the next week off, but also this episode is going to be a little bit shorter and a little less serious. Maybe that'll make up for it if you thought last episode was a little too gruesome, which is an assessment that I might agree with a little bit. As usual, Hidden History is always available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. This week, I want to tell you a simple story about a big catalogue, an old children's book, and maybe a little bit of Christmas magic. You're listening to Hidden History. I'm Ellis Tucci, and this is episode 97. Rodney the Reindeer. So this might be a comparison that makes me sound a little bit like an idiot. But back in the beginning of the 20th century, the closest thing that people had to a retail service like Amazon was the annual catalog issued by department stores like Sears and Montgomery Ward. Now, these catalogs weren't things to be trifled with. You could find almost everything imaginable within its pages, and it could be yours for a small fee plus postage. For example, there are people who, as a hobby, drive around the country looking for houses that were originally ordered from the Sears catalog. Yeah, you could buy a house. It would come on a train car in a massive box, and all you had to do was assemble it. But that's not the point. If you want to learn about Sears houses, that's not something that I'm going to do an episode on. But I think 99% Invisible did an episode about it a few years back, and I'll see if I can find it and put it in the description. The point is to convey to you the expansiveness and power that these massive retail companies had. I mean, they could ship an entire house to anyone in America, and the fact that they could do that in, like, 1890 is honestly incredibly impressive. And the reason that they could do that was because they already had an incredibly complex logistical system in place for the printing and distribution of their catalogs and the readership of these mail-order magazines was spectacularly large. So large, in fact, that there was this joke in the early 1900s that the only two books every American had read were the Bible and the Sears catalog. Now, I suppose, you could be asking at this point, but what does this have to do with Christmas? Well, I'm getting there. The original names for Santa's set of reindeer come from the 1823 poem A Visit from St. Nicholas, more commonly known as Twas the Night Before Christmas, which is generally agreed to have been written by Clement C. Moore, an American professor of ancient languages. So from Moore we get Donner and Blitzen and whatever, and it stays like that for quite a while, until, that is, we get to 1939, The Christmas season is approaching, and the massive retailer Montgomery Ward is thinking up new promotions for the holiday season. And the bosses eventually decide that Montgomery Ward is going to make its own children's book and send it out to all the people across the country who got their catalog. The guy selected to write it was Robert L. May, who, up until that point, had been writing copy for the Montgomery Ward catalog after working through a bunch of names like Reginald and Rodney, May selected Rudolph. According to an interview he did in the 70s, his boss was doubtful as to whether or not Rudolph would succeed as a promotional character. However, Montgomery Ward ended up going along with the idea, printing and distributing around 2.4 million copies of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer in 1939. But things were not looking up for Robert May. His wife Evelyn had been diagnosed with cancer in 1937 and had died in July 1939, leaving May a single father, saddled with a significant amount of medical debt, and surviving on the meager salary of a copywriter. He continued to work at Montgomery Ward throughout World War II, but Rudolf, however popular, wouldn't be seen in the public eye until 1946, as wartime rationing of paper had prevented another print run. Then, after the end of the war, we can make out the beginnings of our Christmas happy ending. You see, in 1931, in the beginning of the Great Depression, Montgomery Ward was losing money. So J.P. Morgan, which owned a majority stake in the company, invited a successful mining executive named Sewell Avery to make the massive retailer profitable again. Now, Avery was a pretty typical big business guy of the era. He donated lots of money to museums and universities and libraries, but also gave an incredible amount to conservative political causes, fiercely opposed unionization, and was a staunch opponent of the New Deal, as well as Roosevelt's war production policies. As a matter of fact, his opposition to Roosevelt and unions was so strong that in 1944, Avery's repeated refusal to sign a union contract, therefore endangering the availability of goods during World War II, resulted in a brief period where the government nationalized Montgomery Ward. If you look up pictures of Sewell Avery, the first one should be of him sitting down while being carried away by two soldiers, that's what that's from. This is to say that Sewell Avery was probably not the most kind and fair-minded guy. But 1946 comes along, and maybe he's visited by some Muppet ghosts or something, but he ends up giving Robert May the full rights to the story he created, which, up until this point, he hadn't made a dime off of. May, who had once dreamed of writing a great American novel, tried to find a new publisher for his story, a difficult task to be sure, as a lot of publishers thought that it was foolish to try and sell something that was once given away for free. Eventually, he succeeded, and what began for him as a large print run of 50-cent children's books eventually expanded into a massive commercial market at just the time that Christmas was becoming commercialized. In 1941, May had remarried, and so it was that his new brother-in-law was Johnny Marks, a songwriter who would go on to write classics like Holly Jolly Christmas and Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree. Marks adapted May's story to song form, and in 1949 it was recorded and released by the singing cowboy, musician and rodeo performer Gene Autry. Rudolph, of course, was a phenomenal success. And for Rudolph, you kind of know where the story goes from here, right? It's a little bit different for Robert May. He eventually left Montgomery Ward to work on his reindeer full-time, but returned in the late 1950s as declining book sales saw him looking for more consistent work. May worked in the copywriting department at Montgomery Ward until his retirement in 1970. In 1971, he was widowed for a second time and remarried the following year. Robert L. May died in 1976 at the age of 71. His memory lives on through one of our most pervasive holiday traditions. And even though it started out as a promotional campaign, that doesn't mean it can't be kind of sweet. Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History. Signing off.
1: You know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen But do you recall The most famous reindeer of all Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer red-nosed reindeer had a very shiny nose, and if you ever saw it, you would even say it glows. All of the other reindeers used to laugh and call him names, they never let boys.